Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Major Mondays webinar series. Uh, the topic this month is ethical duties when representing the subregor. <clears throat> Uh, as always, this is a live question and answer session, so you can see the GoToWebinar software uh, where you can go ahead and type in a question, and we'll get to these at the end of the presentation. So first, let's go over uh, some of the law behind subrogation in New York and New Jersey. So New York, we have New York Workers' Compensation Law, Section 29.2, subsection 2 of Section 29. Uh, that is the pertinent section of the statute for where our subrogation rights come from in New York. In New Jersey, it's subsection F of section 40. And uh, as anyone who's dealt in the subrogation world knows, uh, it's prosecuting a claim in the shoes of the claimant or the petitioner. Uh, so where this starts to get a little hairy is when there's an interaction between the subrogor, that's uh, in terms of parlance, that's gonna be our claimant slash petitioner, and the subrogee, which is the carrier. Uh, what is the interaction and the interplay between their respective rights? Um, when we file a third-party civil action, we are filing ASO as subrogee of uh, the claimant slash petitioner. So let's start off with section 40. So subsection F gives the employer slash carrier the right to, either, to subrogate and either affect a settlement or institute proceedings for recovery. Um, I cited Erickson versus Supermarkets General Corp. It's an appellate division decision from 1991. Uh, basically, it's saying we can either settle directly with the adverse carrier, or we can go ahead and file suit in uh, Superior Court in New Jersey. Uh, there is a requirement of 10 days notice to the petitioner after one year. Uh, that notice has to be served via some form of registered mail, so certified mail return receipt requested. Uh, you have to wait until a year after the date of loss or else it's uh, not yet ripe for subrogation. Uh, once you have that 10 days notice to the petitioner, uh, then you're permitted to file suit or effect a settlement. Uh, I cited to another case here, Andalora versus RD Mechanical Corp. Uh, it's an appellate division decision, a recent one from 2017. Uh, I liked the language here. It is equitable and just that the carrier be reimbursed. Otherwise, there is a windfall to the petitioner or the third party. Uh, the petitioner in the sense that there's a double recovery, which subrogation is designed to prevent, and the third party in that they get off scot-free if nobody sues them for the accident that was properly their fault. So continuing with section 40, uh, this is a Supreme Court case from 1951, Poets versus Mix. Um, the employee can waive the requirement for a written demand since the written demand requirement is undoubtedly for their benefit. So the one situation where you really don't need the Section 40F notice uh, or you can resolve it uh, afterward is the employee's consent. They can actually waive the written uh, requirement. Um, in that case, the employee, the Poets versus Mix, the employee never disavowed the carrier's actions. They showed up for all the discovery, uh, participated in the discovery demands, um, participated in the deposition, and repeatedly acknowledged the carrier's right. So the court ultimately held that even though there wasn't this section 40F notice as required by the statute, uh, the employee was free to waive it and just by their actions, they did. Um, it's a shame because uh, this is an unreported 2017 appellate division decision, Hartford Underwriters, versus, Hartford Underwriters Insurance Company versus Salamente. 
uh, and citing to poets, um, that case stated that the carrier's action preserves the subrogor's right of action. Uh, so what happened in that case, and this is why I said it's kind of a shame that it's unreported, um, suit was actually filed on the last day of the statute of limitations. And what the court ultimately held was that the carrier doing that actually preserved the cause of action for the petitioner themselves. So um, that's just an interesting little uh, interaction between the subrogore and subrogee's rights. Just by the virtue of filing as the subrogee, we can actually perfect their rights. It's almost as if we're being treated one and the same in the eyes of the court. So moving to section 29, uh, this requires 30 days notice as opposed to 10 days notice in New Jersey. Uh, you get one year after the date of loss you can serve it or six months after the awarding of compensation. Uh, so that notice of decision comes out, uh, you know, approximately 30 days into the case or whatever the, whatever the case may be. Uh, there's money moving to the claimant or medical treatment or something to that effect is, is authorized. Um, six months from the date of awarding of compensation, uh, subrogation is ripe upon 30 days notice. Um, and this is a case that uh, actually uh, Christian Cson and I referenced in uh, a podcast we did on uh, risk transfer. If you haven't heard his Third Friday podcast series, it's highly recommended. Uh, Skakandi versus State, a third department decision from 1948. And again, this is one I just cited too because I love the language here. Uh, the claimant having taken compensation and having failed to commence a third party action within the time limitation of section 29.1, uh, their cause of action was assigned to the carrier and the assignment was an absolute one. And the assignment of the cause of action to the carrier divests the next of kin and vests in the carrier assignee the ownership of the claim. So you can see in New York here, it's pretty vehemently protected once we perfect this assignment. So uh, continuing with section 29, uh, that's a candy case said carrier can sue or compromise at will and has full authority to compromise and settle even for an amount less than what was paid in compensation. Um, Marmot versus Rankins, a fourth department decision from 1957. Uh, after the assignment, the carrier can, without the employee consent, settle or compromise again at will. So what does this stand for essentially is the employee has no control over their case once it's assigned to the carrier. Their action could be barred. I cited to a case where that happened, Liberty Mutual Insurance Co. versus Brown and Matthews, or they could lose the legal capacity to sue, meaning that they don't even have the right to bring the action anymore. Uh, that's a, came from a case, Nelson versus Buffalo Niagara Electric Court. So uh, you can see in New York, the consequences of assignment and subrogation are relatively severe. So lack of prosecution, this is um, an interesting sort of area of subrogation. So section 40F actually provides for it explicitly. When an employee's proceedings are dismissed for lack of prosecution, the carrier shall upon uh, application made within 90 days be entitled to have dismissal set aside and to continue prosecution uh, in the name of the injured employee. So uh, that's a nice weapon afforded to the carrier, where if you have a claimant that uh, voluntarily abandons the case or um, fails to take any action and the court dismisses it, uh, we actually have a statutory right under Section 40F as the workers' comp carrier uh, 
to have that dismissal set aside and pick up the ball and carry it across the uh, carry it across the line. So uh, that's a pretty powerful right that we're afforded under New Jersey Section 40. Section 29 uh, has something similar uh, in its progeny in the case law. Uh, voluntary abandonment or discontinuance without the carrier consent can waive the right to compensation even if no prejudice results. So uh, if the claimant walks away from the case and it constitutes a voluntary uh, abandonment or they stipulate to discontinue the case or something to that effect, um, that can constitute a compromise of the action that waives their, if they don't get the carrier's consent, that waives their right to additional compensation benefits, even if there's no prejudice to the carrier. <clears throat> so just a little bit of a practitioner's tip here. Let's talk about the sufficiency of the notice. Uh, we had the 10 days requirement under section 40F, uh, 30 days requirement under section 29.2. So a good sec, this is just broad strokes. Uh, it gets a little more intricate than this, but just synthesizing the information from the prior slides, Let's think for a moment about the sufficiency of the notice. A uh, good section 40F notice or section 29.2 notice should clearly explain, one, we do, will file suit and we do not represent the worker. Uh, no settlement or judgment is being sought on their behalf, right? We want our maximum reimbursement, particularly if the comp case is closed, uh, and we're not interested in much beyond that. <clears throat> we always advise the worker to consult their own attorney, uh, we don't want them to go into court later after we settle the case, getting back dollar for dollar on everything we've paid in comp, only to have them go, I didn't know, I didn't have the opportunity to ask somebody, what, what do I do? Uh, you know, advising them to get an attorney explicitly cuts down the risk of uh, maybe a sympathetic decision from the court. Um, always advise them of the appropriate time limits. In New Jersey, you got to file suit within 10 days of this notice. Uh, New York, you got to file suit within 30 days of this notice. We always, always advise as to the statute of limitations as well, so that they know, you know, what this sense of urgency is coming from. <clears throat> and finally, this is uh, especially important in New York, uh, the claimant has to be advised that a failure to file suit within the time limitations specified in the notice constitutes an assignment of their right and a bar to the worker's action. <clears throat> something that we see rather commonly and that uh, we do ourselves at Lois Law Firm, uh, we include a questionnaire, uh, something that says, you know, maybe, uh, do you intend to file suit? Do you have an attorney? What's that attorney's contact information? Where did you file suit? What's the index number? Uh, include a self-addressed stamped envelope so that hopefully it's just the claimant or petitioner checking boxes and sending it on back to you by sticking it in their mailbox increases the chances of getting a meaningful response. <clears throat> so we, we talked, sorry, premature there. Uh, we talked about how the assignment of the petitioner or claimant's cause of action can be rather severe. So the question is when we're dealing with uh, the ethical considerations of representing a subregor, do they still have any rights to the settlement at all? Uh, section 40F, if the settlement or judgment is in excess of the carrier's obligation to the employee and expenses of suit, so in other words, our litigation costs plus our total lien as of the date of settlement, uh, anything in excess of that is payable to the petitioner. Section 29.2 has a very similar provision. Uh, if an amount is in excess of the total compensation and medical expenses plus cost of litigation, so again, lien plus our uh, costs in prosecuting the third-party action, 
uh, two thirds of that excess is payable to the employee and is deemed for the employee's benefit. So scope of representation, this is where it starts to get um, a, little, uh, a little more dicey. So something for defense counsel to keep in mind in prosecuting an action as subrogate of the claimant. We represent the carrier, not the claimant. Uh, there is no attorney-client relationship created by subrogation. And why is this important? Uh, this means that client protections under the rules of professional conduct do not apply to the claimant slash petitioner from us. So uh, what I'm thinking about when I mention this is there's a requirement um, as an attorney that you have to keep your client reasonably informed of the progress of the case. There's no such obligation to the claimant slash subrogore. Once we pick up the ball and start carrying it ourselves, we don't have to report to them on the progress of litigation or even give them an opportunity to participate in the settlement negotiations. Uh, again, this is one that I'm uh, somewhat upset that it's not a reported decision because it, it has a lot of really good language in there and a really good central holding. Uh, it's an NJ Appellate Division decision from 2015, El Halu versus Lipinski Outdoor Services. Really wish this one ended up getting published, but um, it essentially says what I was just discussing, no obligation to inform the worker in advance of settlement or obtain cons consent and no attorney-client relationship. Uh, the settlement that we enter into bars the worker's claim. So something interesting arises when you're prosecuting a claim as defense counsel, as subrogate of the claimant. Is there an inherent conflict of interest here? So the rules of professional conduct prohibit simultaneous adverse representation. And you may think to yourself, well, wait a minute, it's the interests of the carrier on one side and it's the interests of the carrier on the other side. How is this simultaneous adverse representation? The carrier's interests are aligned across both of them, right? Minimize exposure, that's the bottom line. Get back the money and cut down on what our total expenses were, our bottom line at the end of the day. So what if we're prosecuting a subrogated civil action and simultaneously defending a worker's comp claim? So if you think about this practically as an attorney who's prosecuting the case, to obtain the maximum benefit for the client, in this case, the carrier, you kind of got to beef up that civil claim, right? You have to prove that you, the claimant has serious and permanent injuries, you know, that it's worth paying you back the $200,000 or whatever the case may be that you paid in comp, even though that's statutorily guaranteed to the claimant slash petitioner, and obviously a civil settlement or judgment is not. You have to make your case that that money should be made available in a third party action. However, in the workers' comp claim, what are we doing from day one? We're trying to downplay the severity of that workers' compensation claim. We're trying to say the injuries are not permanent. The injuries are not serious. Uh, this person suffered a miniature boo-boo, a scratch on their knee, and this case should be dismissed. So uh, on the one hand, if you're representing the carrier in both civil court and in workers' comp court, uh, you're hurting your case either way. Uh, you're trying to shoot it down in the comp claim, which is shooting it down in the civil action, or beef it up in the civil action, which is beefing, runs the risk of beefing it up in the workers' compensation claim. The last thing you need is to file a discovery response saying uh, the claimant has suffered severe and permanent injuries and have the claimant go and wave that in front of a workers' compensation law judge uh, saying that this is what the carrier said. So uh, a prudent attorney in this situation would decline the representation to begin with 
if the subrogation action started first or if the defense relationship started first or withdraw from the subsequent representation as soon as the conflict of interest became apparent. So this is where it gets a little difficult in prosecuting third-party actions as subrogate of the claimant. Uh, what about responding to discovery demands? Um, so by their very nature, answers on behalf of a carrier uh, can only be made upon information and belief, right? Uh, the, the adjuster was not the party that slipped and fell, was not the one that went to treat at the hospital or had any of the subsequent lost time from work. That's all in the personal knowledge of the claimant slash petitioner. And uh, while we know pretty well, because we're the ones that are paying the benefits, realistically, our answers on behalf of the carrier can only be made upon information and belief. We're stepping into the claimant's shoes, but we're not the claimant. Um, if discovery responses are being filed on behalf of the carrier, uh, and they require some form of verification. Uh, I'm thinking about a New York case where uh, it's a uh, verified complaint and then a bill of particulars is required to be verified thereafter. Um, these responses can be attorney verified or even certified to by the handling adjuster that has familiarity with the case. Um, so the worker might be represented if you're seeking their participation in discovery. And that's something to keep in mind. Uh, if they're pr prosecuting a case in workers' compensation court, uh, you can't just call them up on the phone as uh, an attorney <clears throat> for the carrier and say, we need you to show up for a deposition. Uh, contact still has to be through their attorney. And along these same lines, you're gonna request the attorney's assistance in uh, proceeding through discovery. So continuing on this topic of worker participation discovery, uh, something important to keep in mind here. This is someone who did not want to bring the suit on their own in the first place, or just an incredibly forgetful claimant. Uh, but when there's money on the line, we know that they tend to remember their case pretty well. Uh, so this is generally somebody who didn't want the hassle of, you know, a knockdown drag out war in superior court or Supreme court. Um, but, the problem that arises for the carrier is we still have to produce the injured worker for a deposition if it's demanded uh, by our adversary in the third party civil action. We can't uh, hide that person from testimony, not when the defendants have a right to cross examine them and to put them to their proofs. We can't hide them by throwing our hands up in the air and saying, we're, we're the subrogate, we, we, we can't do that. We can't produce that person. Uh, the defendants have a right to get the information from them and to look them in the eyes and ask the questions. So <clears throat> if you have a particularly uncooperative worker, uh, this may require a subpoena for their testimony. Uh, and it, you know, it would be difficult if it actually got to that point, but you may have to try and compel their testimony if they're not willing to cooperate. Uh, so what is the workers' comp defense counsel? And when I say defense counsel, I mean subrogation counsel. Uh, what is your role in this situation? Well, number one, as we just discussed, advise the workers' attorney. Let them know, hey, there's these discovery demands. They've noticed a deposition for such and such date. Can you have your client appear there or do I have to issue a subpoena? And most of the times they will be, if they're reasonable, they'll be cooperative. They don't want to deal with the subpoena response on their client's behalf. Um, if the worker shows up without any representation, and again, we always recommend that they do retain an attorney, and uh, maybe in an ideal situation, they'll retain an attorney and start prosecuting the case on their own. 
which point we just sit back and assert a lien and withdraw in favor of their action. Uh, so if they show up without an attorney and they're just sort of a babe in the woods, uh, again, there's no attorney-client relationship here. But we don't want to get shot in the foot in our own deposition because we're trying to prove our case. So where does this sort out? We're not going to advise them on their responses, uh, again, because we don't represent them. But we are going to prevent overt bullying. And I'm talking about blatant objections, the same question getting asked in five times in a row, uh, standing up and shouting and, and making hand gestures and stuff, things of that nature. We would want to preserve it on the record with our own objection if it's blatantly objectionable. Uh, secure the worker's attendance. So make sure that they're aware of it. Uh, Follow-ups leading up to the date. Uh, we want to make sure as certain as possible that they will appear. Uh, and as always, suggest that the worker consult an attorney if they're not already represented. So, settling a subrogated civil action. So, just to rewind to where we were earlier in this presentation, let's remember that the worker does not have rights to the settlement in New York or New Jersey uh, after their right has been assigned and we've started prosecuting this case or negotiating with the adverse carrier. Um, however, the defense counsel, subrogation counsel, uh, is in an interesting spot here because they are like any other plaintiff's attorney. So when you go to settle the case, there's some baseline obligations of, uh, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Uh, carrier's form W-9 must be produced so that the adverse carrier can cut a check. Uh, general release, which is usually going to be prepared by the defendants and issued to the plaintiff to sign, uh, that should be um, closely scrutinized by uh, the subrogation counsel. Um, it need not contemplate the workers' causes of action. So when I say that, I mean that the general general liability release should say, you know, carrier forfeits the right to uh, prosecute these cases, and so does claimant. Uh, we can't we we can't agree to that, and it doesn't need to be agreed to because again. Once the case was assigned, that right was forfeited. So it should really only release our claims, uh, not those of the claimant or petitioner. Uh, and those general liability releases should be looked at very closely and edited accordingly. It take an active role in the settlement negotiations and the terms of it. Um, so along those same lines for settlement, uh, defense slash subrogation counsel is responsible for proper payment of funds. So uh, again, they're just like any plaintiff's attorney. Uh, closing statement should be prepared that breaks down the costs and disbursements and the attorney's fee and all that other stuff. Um, a stipulation of discontinuance should be filed with the court uh, or a stipulation of dismissal. Um, and let's not forget that if we recover an amount in excess of our lien, that excess is payable to the claimant. And even though we don't represent them, that's now our burden to, to pay. And as any carrier that's paid a full and final settlement in New York or New Jersey is aware, um, sometimes there's a lien, uh, child support or uh, back taxes or alimony slash spousal support. Uh, this is where you kind of have to have a, you have a baseline duty to inquire about the existence of such liens with the, uh, with the claimant slash petitioner uh, and ensure that those are satisfied out of the fresh money moving to them. Uh, even though we don't represent them, uh, you better believe that it's going to come back to bite a worker's compensation carrier if they're issuing a lump sum settlement check to an injured worker 
and not satisfying the interested liens as if we had been paying a full and final uh, settlement. So just as a best practices and uh, cover yourself tactic, it should be inquired into whether there are such liens and they should be confirmed and they should be paid out of that excess money payable to the claimant. So that does it for the substantive portion of the presentation. Let me see if we have any questions before I sign off. Oops, that appears to be our attendees. Ah, here we are, questions. And I do not see any questions at the moment. So that is going to do it for me. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining for the Major Mondays webinar presentation today. And uh, I hope to see you next month. Uh, everyone stay safe, stay well, and if you're in the Northeast today, uh, stay dry.